when Napoleon Bonaparte's sister, Alicia, was dying, someone who was present in the room with her commented that they said, nothing was as certain as death, except taxes, added Alicia, making her dying words her most famous words. So now you know, that's where it came from. Now, Alicia Bonaparte, you know what, she is not the only one who has ever had negative thoughts about taxes. She may have been the first one to link the unpleasantness and inevitability of death with taxes, but many people have had unfavorable feelings about taxes. However, the distaste associated with paying taxes, it did not originate in the last few hundred years, because even in biblical times, this issue, this matter of taxes was a very serious problem. You see, at the time of Jesus, Rome, the Roman Empire, ruled over Israel and forced the Jewish people to pay taxes to them. Now, this presented a major problem for the Jewish people, and not simply because most of them were poor and did not want to give their money to Rome. It really went much deeper than that. See, ancient Israelites believed that the only acceptable form of government for them was a theocracy. So what is a theocracy? A theocracy means that God ruled over them through divinely appointed leaders. Leaders such as Moses, and the start in Old Testament times, Moses, and then Joshua, and then there were the judges, and then there were the kings reigning over them. And that's how it was in the Old Testament era. And the Jewish people in the New Testament era wanted the same thing. They wanted a theocracy, but to be ruled and to be taxed by a pagan, Gentile, foreign empire like Rome was something that they deeply resented because they considered it indecent. They considered it unholy, a violation of their religious beliefs. And the only thing they hated more than being taxed by Rome was the Jewish people who collected taxes for the Romans. You see, Rome collected their taxes through what they called a franchise system. It was known as tax farming, in which they assessed each district in the land a specific tax figure, and then they sold the right to collect these taxes to the highest bidders among the Jewish citizens. So hired Jewish tax collectors then, they were responsible for giving Rome, the previously assessed figures at the end of the year, and yes, they had to collect whatever Rome said you had to collect, but also they could keep for themselves everything above that mount, everything above what they were supposed to collect, and that's exactly what they did. Jewish tax collectors working for Rome, they were notorious for growing rich by overcharging the people on what they claimed they owed the government. And there's basically nothing that the people could do to stop this exploitation since a tax collector's power was enforced by Rome's military might. So that Jewish men who owned a tax franchise essentially were given a license for robbery and extortion, and everybody knew it. One Bible teacher explained the difficult tax situation in first century Israel this way. He said the system fostered exploitation by the arbitrary power of the tax gatherers. They could stop anyone on the road, make him or her unpack their bundles, and charge just about anything they wanted. If the person could not pay, the tax collector sometimes would offer to loan money at an exorbitant 
rape, thus pulling the people further into their greedy hands. They were trained extortionists. Quite naturally, they attracted a criminal element of thugs and enforcers, the scum of society. So rare was honesty in the profession that a Roman writer remarked in amazement that he once saw a monument to an honest tax collector. Just a rarity. Now, as a result, folks, of this very corrupt tax system, Jewish tax collectors were the most hated and most despised and loathed men in Hebrew society, not only because they robbed from the people, but also because they were considered traitors, traitors to Israel since they worked for the Romans against their fellow Jews. And they were looked down upon by the general populace as incredibly crooked simply because they usually were. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, we're not there yet, but in Luke chapter 19, we will see and we're given insight into the dishonesty of tax collectors by being told about a certain man, a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, who upon his conversion was willing, he said, to return four times the amount of money to those he had defrauded. Zacchaeus had been one of those corrupt tax collectors who had overcharged the people and now needed to make restitution for what he had done. And because this type of corruption, it just characterized tax collectors of that day, they were often then classified with the lowest, most unsavory, just shady characters in Jewish society. I want you to notice by the following statements how people in New Testament times tended to lump tax collectors together with some morally sleazy people. This is not by accident. Notice, there was that self-righteous Pharisee that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 18 who put tax collectors in the same category with swindlers and adulterers. He prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and tax collectors. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 32, Jesus himself, he identified tax collectors together with prostitutes. Why? Because he spoke of them both as believing in John the Baptist and his ministry. Jesus put them together because they were both considered moral outcasts, tax collectors, prostitutes. And in Matthew 18, verse 17, in the context of church discipline, our Lord placed tax collectors in the same camp as pagan Gentiles. Here's what he said. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, note this, as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, just as tax collectors and Gentiles were identified as unbelievers and were therefore considered outside of the social and religious life in Israel, so a professing Christian who refuses to repent of their sin, Jesus said, should also be treated as an unbeliever and therefore be outside of the believing community. In fact, Jewish tax collectors were considered so crooked and just so corrupt that not only were they forbidden to be involved in the religious life of Israel since they were not allowed to join a synagogue, but they were even prohibited from giving a testimony in a court of law. Why? Because they could not be trusted to speak the truth. Now, I have purposely spent all this time explaining how hated and detested tax collectors were in first century Israel 
for the simple reason that the passage we're going to study today, if you did not have this as a background, it would lose its impact. The passage I'm referring to is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Here's what Luke tells us. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, as you can tell, in these verses, Luke conveys to us the story of the conversion of a tax collector by the name of Levi. You know him better by his other name, Matthew. Matthew, who went on to become one of Christ's own apostles and the author of the very first book in the New Testament named after him. Now, interestingly, though, Luke doesn't tell us about the conversion of all of the Lord's apostles, his special representatives, but he does make it a point to tell us about Matthew coming to faith in Christ. And so the question that we naturally want to ask is why? Why would he do this? Why choose Matthew's story of how he came to faith in Jesus? And the answer is simply this. He tells us about Matthew coming to Jesus in order to teach us a very important truth. That truth being that Jesus Christ forgives the worst and the most wicked of sinners like tax collectors. You see, Luke understood that the previous passage that he told us about concerning, remember the paralyzed man who was brought through the roof of the house and lay before Jesus. And Jesus not only healed him, but he forgave him of his sins. Luke understood that All the talk about Jesus forgiving this man might raise a number of questions in the midst and minds of his original readers. Questions about forgiveness. They didn't have 2,000 years like we have of a background of Christianity. So they might wonder what kind of people does Jesus forgive? Will he forgive all sinners or are there some people who are just too evil for him to forgive? Or are there any conditions that someone might have to meet before they can be forgiven. Questions of of that nature. Now, the way that Luke answers these types of questions about forgiveness is by presenting Matthew, a man who prior to his conversion had been one of those wicked and hated tax collectors and was considered, frankly, by the Jewish establishments of his day to be beyond any spiritual help. And yet, Jesus forgave him. See, in the minds of most Jewish people of that day, Matthew's case was absolutely hopeless. But in calling Matthew to be one of his disciples, our Lord has given all of us hope. And I mean all of us, because he took a man from the most wicked profession in Jewish society in order to showcase him as an example of a forgiven individual and to illustrate and teach us a number of practical truths about God's forgiveness Concerning why Luke would write about Matthew's conversion, one Bible teacher said this, and this just reiterates what I've said to you. This dramatic incident answers the question of whose sins Jesus would forgive. 
It reveals how deep into the dregs of society he would delve to rescue sinners. In this account, Jesus saved someone at the very bottom, a hated, despised tax collector. That's really the point. It's exactly what this passage of Scripture before us is about. Luke tells us of the conversion of Levi Matthew for the purpose of teaching us several significant truths about God's forgiveness in terms of who does the Lord forgive. So with this as our background, let's begin. We want to begin to unfold these verses and discover what God has to say about who he forgives. And the first truth that we discover right off the bat from these verses about God's forgiveness is that he only forgives sinners, watch this, who are willing to forsake their sin. He only forgives sinners who are willing to forsake their sin. Verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, the passage begins by telling us that sometime after the incident of forgiving and healing the paralyzed man, Jesus came upon a man by the name of Levi, who was the local tax collector for the area. Now, in those days, it was common for Jewish men to have two names. They could have a Jewish name as well as a Roman name. And that seems to be the case with Levi because while Luke refers to him by his Jewish name, Levi, Matthew, in his own account, his own gospel narrative, the same story of his conversion, he refers to himself, he calls himself Matthew, which would appear to be his Roman name. The other possibility is that his given name was Levi and perhaps the Lord renamed him Matthew at his conversion. Matthew meaning gift of the Lord. I mean, you remember Jesus did that with Simon. He said, you are Simon, your name will be Peter, rock, stone. It's very possible that took place here. But more likely, he had a Jewish name, Levi, and a Roman name, Matthew. But regardless of the background, the specifics of his name, on this particular day, Luke tells us that Jesus saw him, saw this man sitting in his tax collector's booth. And Mark, in his gospel narrative, he reveals that this took place while Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee one day, teaching people, walking along, teaching people behind him, around him, as he, as he continued. And it may very well be that after being in a crowded house, you remember the house was crowded from wall to wall with people. That's why they had to let this paralyzed man down through the roof. They couldn't get through the front door. It may very well be after being in a crowded house for hours that the Lord just felt the need to get outside and go for a refreshing walk along the shore of the lake while people followed him out the door and he just continued teaching them as they walked together along the shoreline. Now, most likely, this means that Christ's encounter with Matthew took place on the outskirts of the town of Capernaum where Matthew was in his customs booth. He would be collecting taxes on any goods passing through the area. See, Capernaum was located in a very strategic spot along an international highway that ran between Syria in the north and Egypt in the south. And so it was Matthew's job as the local tax gatherer to collect any taxes on items that passed along this well-trafficked route. It's also very possible that since he was a tax collector along the Sea of Galilee, that it was his job to collect taxes for any fish caught in the lake. Now, while Luke doesn't tell us about any prior contact or any prior conversation that Matthew ever had with Jesus, 
once again, it's very likely that they would have both known of each other. Now, we know that Jesus would have certainly seen Matthew many times in his customs booth as he walked along the Sea of Galilee, and Matthew certainly knew about Jesus because, well, what citizen of Capernaum didn't know about Jesus? In fact, it's very likely that Matthew was well acquainted with Christ's teaching, and they may very well have had a number of prior conversations. Matthew probably had been under Christ's influence for some time since he would have had many opportunities to be exposed to Christ's teaching and healing ministry because they primarily took place in and around the town of Capernaum. Now, what we do know for sure about Matthew, this despised tax collector, is that he had a deep awareness of his sin and he longed and yearned for God's forgiveness. This is so obvious because when Jesus approached Matthew on this particular day and said to him, follow me, here's what we read in verse 28. This was Matthew's response. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Luke tells us that as soon as Jesus told Matthew to follow him immediately, without any hesitation, he rose from his tax collector's chair that he had been sitting in, and he began to follow and walk after Christ. Now, it's important that we understand exactly what Luke means by these words, that Matthew immediately followed Christ. You see, by calling Matthew to follow him, Jesus was calling this outcast tax collector to be one of his disciples, one of his students, one of his followers. And that involved, note this, it involved a total commitment to him. Nothing short of that. A surrendering of his heart to Christ and therefore to the authority of Christ's word. It meant a commitment not only to learn from Jesus, but also to obey Jesus. And that necessitated a decisive break from his old way of life, a walking away from the corrupt work of a tax collector. Now look again, if you will, at verse 28. And I want you to notice what Luke tells us. It cost Matthew to follow Jesus. Verse 28 says, he left, note this, everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And what this means is that when Matthew became one of Christ's followers, he made a clean break from his shady and dishonest life by turning his back on his sinful lifestyle. You see, for Matthew to walk away from being a tax collector, that was a great sacrifice because it meant turning away from his job. It meant turning away from being wealthy because tax collectors were very wealthy men. It meant that he was turning away from the very life that he had lived all these years of being ruthless and fraudulent. And unlike the fishermen, who followed Christ, and most of our Lord's apostles were fishermen, Matthew could never, ever return to his old job of tax collecting. A fisherman could, he couldn't. Once he walked out of that office that day, his action was final. He gave it all up, folks. Bible scholar Leon Morris explained the great personal sacrifice that Matthew was making in following Jesus. Here's what he said. They would surely never take him back again if he later decided he wanted to return. The fishermen might go back to their fishing, but the tax collector would not be able to return to the levying of custom duties. Anyway, his lucrative post would soon be filled. And if he tried to get another job, 
Well, who would want to employ a former tax collector? I can assure you, no Jewish person would want to employ a former Jewish tax collector. Now, folks, I want to pause here. And I want us to consider two key principles, two key truths that Matthew's conversion teaches us about the people that God forgives. First of all, the fact that Jesus called someone as sinful and as utterly contemptible as Matthew to be one of his followers, forgiven followers, it reveals that no one is beyond Christ's forgiveness. And I mean no one. No matter what you have done in the past, regardless of how shameful your behavior and sin has been, that sin can be forgiven. Absolutely forgiven. If Jesus can forgive Matthew, then he can forgive anyone because Matthew being a typical tax collector was a crook and a scoundrel who robbed from his own people and became a wealthy man at his neighbor's expense. And the people, the people, his neighbors, must have just despised him for it. As someone said, he was the most publicly unacceptable candidate for discipleship. But listen, Jesus takes people like that. Jesus takes people that nobody else wants. And he not only forgives them, but he makes them useful, holy vessels for his kingdom. Remember, Matthew became the author of an inspired book that not only introduces the entire New Testament, everybody for 2,000 years who's turning to the New Testament sees the Gospel of Matthew first. But not only that, Matthew's Gospel, in that he was uniquely chosen to exalt Christ as King and Messiah, Matthew's Gospel is majestic. Christ is exalted as the King, the Messiah. But in his day, in Matthew's day, nobody thought much of Matthew except Jesus, and that's the point. In fact, the people living in the Galilee area most likely would have been delighted to see Matthew severely judged by God, not saved by Christ. Yet Jesus chose to save and forgive this man. Why? Well, that's because that's what Jesus does. That's who he is. He rescues sinners like us because we're all like Matthew in our hearts. He rescues sinners like us from condemnation by showing mercy to those who are so very wicked, and that includes all of us. And he does this because it brings glory to himself by displaying his kindness to those who do not deserve his kindness. Listen to what Paul said about Jesus saving him as a horribly wicked sinner. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 16. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So let me sum up essentially what Paul is saying. He's saying this, if Jesus Christ could save someone like me, a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a violent man who was the chief of all sinners, first among all the sinners in the world, if he could save me, he can save anyone. 
And that, folks, includes you. No matter what you have done in the past, you can be saved and forgiven. Because in reality, all of us should really see ourselves as the chief of sinners. If you don't see yourself as a wicked sinner, something is very wrong. You're blind. You don't know the truth about yourself. What Paul said about himself could be said of every one of us. Second principle about God's forgiveness that stands out from Matthew's conversion is that it tells us that those sinners whom Jesus forgives no longer want to continue in their sin. Those sinners who Jesus forgives don't want to continue the way they've been living in their sin. Just as Matthew turned his back on his old self-focused way of life to follow Christ, so every truly converted individual turns away from what they once practiced to a new way of life that is Christ-focused. In fact, new believers can't turn away from their old way of life quick enough. Remember Zacchaeus, after his conversion, he said that he would give half of his possessions to the poor and then he would make restitution with those he defrauded. And Jesus assured him right then and there that he had experienced the new birth by the evidence of his outward actions. Jesus said this to him, Today salvation has come to this house. I see it. You're a changed man, Zacchaeus. You evidence a new nature, regeneration. You see, those who are truly converted by virtue of the new nature that God plants within us at salvation, no longer do we have the same love for our old sins that we used to have. We now have a new affection for righteousness. And so we turn our backs on our previous sinful lifestyles. Now, let me balance this so that you don't misunderstand. This certainly does not mean that we never sin again. We do sin. In fact, we're more conscious of our sins than ever before. It doesn't mean that we are no longer tempted to sin. We are tempted a great deal. Nor does it mean that we no longer struggle with sin. We do struggle with sin. But what it does mean is that we no longer practice a lifestyle of ongoing continual sin in which we just want to continue and don't hate it and don't struggle with it. That's what it means. It means that we're no longer dominated and controlled by a sin nature that we are compelled to obey. In other words, sin is no longer our habitual way of life. We may sin, but we repent. We're no longer slaves to sin because we pursue Christ honoring obedience. So for one who becomes a believer in Christ, if your job requires dishonesty and deceitfulness, then what do you do? You leave it. You just leave it for a job that doesn't cause you to compromise biblical ethics. And if you have been involved in an immoral relationship and you're saved, you're converted, then you immediately stop it and you start practicing biblical morality. You don't try to reason your way through this. You just stop it. See, when God forgives your sin, you no longer want to continue in your old ways. In fact, you now hate the sin that you once loved. And you long to obey Christ. You long to obey His Word. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. It's illustrated with Matthew, but it is taught. It is taught explicitly in the New Testament writings. For example, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're new in Christ. Your behavior will be new. Romans 6, 17 and 18, Paul again said, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, 
you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Meaning the gospel, salvation. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. To be a slave of righteousness is a good thing. To be a slave of sin is a bad thing. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Now, John was a very blunt, very direct man. It's reflected in his writings. Here's what he said. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Remember, he's not talking about committing sin. We all commit sin. He's talking about practicing sin to the point of you want to continue in your sin. You don't want to repent. You just practice it. You approve of it. It's your way of life. John says, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. It means that the new nature is in us and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Listen, all of these verses, and there are many others, but all these verses confirm exactly the same thing. That those who know Christ have all walked away from their sinful past. They've walked away to follow him. Now, if that hasn't been your experience, then you still need to come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are living a life in total disobedience to God, you need salvation. You need to be forgiven. Because those whom he forgives, they do turn their backs on their old sinful ways. And so by telling us that Jesus called Matthew to salvation, we learn a marvelous truth about forgiveness. Christ will forgive the worst of sinners, but only sinners who are willing to forsake their sin to follow him. So if you are ever going to come to Jesus for salvation, you must forsake your sin. You can't come to him otherwise. You can't come to him on your terms. You come on his terms, and his terms mean you forsake your sin. And if you already have come to him, you're already a Christian, then you will continue to forsake your sin as the Lord makes you aware of your sin. That's just the nature of a new creature in Christ. But there is a second truth that we discover about God's forgiveness from this passage. Not only... Does God only forgive sinners who are willing to forsake their sin? But as we move on, we see this truth. Those whom God forgives have a concern for other people to be forgiven. Those whom God forgives have a concern for others to be forgiven. Verse 29. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, notice what Matthew did right after he came to faith in Christ. He threw a big party for Jesus right in his home. His home must have been a large home. Remember, he was a wealthy man. Must have been a very large home. And he invited to this party a number of tax collectors, former colleagues of his, along with many other people who both Matthew and Mark in their gospel narratives identify as sinners. What does that mean? Because we're all sinners what do they mean sinners? Well, they essentially mean irreligious Jews. Most likely the guest list included drunks and prostitutes and thieves and thugs and other lowlifes in Jewish society. In other words, these were 
Jewish people who didn't care at all about following the law of Moses or the traditions established by the rabbis. They were people just like Matthew had been, renegade Jews. Now, why did Matthew then throw a party after his conversion and invite his friends? Well, if he's giving a party as we read here, then we know he's obviously not saddened by the prospect of turning his back on his lucrative career as a wealthy tax collector. He has no regrets. So why then did he throw this reception? For the simple reason that he wanted to introduce and to present Jesus to his friends. That's it. He wanted his friends to get to know Jesus, the one who has just forgiven his sins. You see, Matthew is just so thrilled about the forgiveness that he has just recently experienced in Christ that he wants his friends to have the opportunity to sit down with Jesus and have a conversation with him with the hopes that they too will believe on him and experience this marvelous forgiveness. And the fact that Luke says they were reclining, notice he says they were reclining at the table, it indicates that a meal was served. People then didn't sit in a chair and eat at a table. They reclined. They were on the floor. And what this indicates is that this must have been a lengthy enough time for Matthew's guests to engage Jesus in a discussion. I love the fact that Jesus had no qualms about being with such notorious sinners. As one reads the New Testament, we see that our Lord often had a meal with people who were shunned and others wouldn't think of being in the same room with them. But Jesus did. He did this often. Chuck Swindoll in his commentary on Luke says this about Jesus being at Matthew's party. I love this. He writes, the term reception carries the connotation of a party. It suggests Jesus dined at Levi's table and drank his wine. He laughed. He told stories. He sang songs with the city's notorious sinners. How great was that? Without stooping to sin or losing his dignity and rowdy, off-color behavior, Jesus nonetheless lowered himself to enjoy the company of sinners and to embrace them as friends. Folks, that's a treasure of a quote. This is our Lord. If you don't think of our Lord like this, you need to, because this is what he was doing. You see, more of us should follow the example set by Jesus, spending time with unsaved people, being with some unsavory characters that other Christians would never think of touching and being with, and deliberately doing things with the unsaved for the sake of presenting Christ to them. But so often we tend to isolate ourselves from the unsaved. You know exactly what I mean. We surround ourselves only with believing people. But Jesus didn't do that. He engaged the world by spending time with unbelievers, and he deliberately went to places to be with them that others just tended to avoid. And that's why he accepted Matthew's invitation to have dinner with his friends. Listen, what Matthew did was a great thing, but it was really not out of the norm. It was the normal thing that one would expect from a new believer. Why? Because he cared about his friend's salvation. You see, one of the first evidences that you have been converted is that you have a burden for your loved ones to be converted to. Someone once said, those who aren't interested in anyone else going to heaven with them probably aren't going there themselves. Meaning that a true Christian longs for others to experience what he has in Christ so that our evangelism, our witnessing, it often starts with the people that we are closest to. 
And that's because we become so excited about being forgiven that we want those closest to us to experience this wonderful forgiveness too. You can see this demonstrated in the lives of a number of new believers mentioned on the pages of Scripture, specifically in the New Testament. For example, there's Andrew. Andrew, one of Christ's apostles, or he would go on to be an apostle, he had this burden for his brother by the name of Simon. He wanted him to meet Jesus. This is what we read in John chapter 141. The first thing Andrew did, this is the first thing he did after meeting Jesus, was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And another future apostle, Philip, after coming to know Christ, he went out and told his friend Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. And you recall the Samaritan woman of John chapter 4? After her encounter with Jesus, She told the men of her village, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. And folks, newly converted Matthew, he's doing exactly what they did. He's telling his friends about Jesus by inviting them to his house so that they can meet the Lord up front and engage him in a conversation and to get to hear what Jesus has to say and to see the kind of man that Jesus is. As someone who's just been forgiven of all of his sins, Matthew longs for his sinful colleagues to be forgiven too of their sins. And he knows this only comes by knowing about Jesus and then believing in Jesus. So he's brought them together. Now, is this your heart's attitude? It's one thing to study about Matthew and say, isn't that wonderful? But is it your heart's attitude, your longing? Do you care about the salvation of family members, of friends, of business associates, of fellow workers, of neighbors. Have you ever told them about Christ? If not, then you need to ask the Lord to not only give you a love for these people and a burden to witness to them and the boldness to witness to them, but you need to ask the Lord for an open door to share Christ with them so there'll be a natural opening for you. And then you ask the Lord to help you to be alert so that when he does open that door, You have the boldness to go through. But if you have absolutely no concern for them or anyone to be forgiven, you have to wonder why. Because this is not right. Could it be that you've never experienced forgiveness yourself? So that their forgiveness, it's no big deal to you because your forgiveness is no big deal to you because you've never experienced it. Or could it be that though you have been forgiven, the wonder And the joy of what it means to be forgiven of all of your sins has been obscured by some unrepented of sin in your life? Could it be that you're in such sin that your heart is hardened? Whatever reason, you're not that excited about telling others about forgiveness. You you need to deal with that. If it's that you've never been forgiven yourself, then come to Christ Be saved. If you have been forgiven, then confess your sin. And then go tell your colleagues, your family members, your relatives about their need for Christ. Now going back to this banquet that Matthew held for his friends to meet Jesus, we are not told what their response was to Christ. We're not told how the tax collectors, the other people, responded to Jesus. However, we are told that when some Pharisees found out that Jesus was dining with tax collectors and sinners, they had a very negative reaction to Jesus. And their negative reaction leads us to discover still 
another truth, a third truth about God's forgiveness. We've already discovered, number one, that God only forgives those who are willing to forsake their sin. And number two, those whom God forgives have a concern for other people to be forgiven. And now, the third truth we discover from this passage about God's forgiveness is that God's forgiveness comes only to those who see their need for his forgiveness. God's forgiveness comes only to those who see their need for his forgiveness. Verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now Luke tells us that some Pharisees and scribes, although certainly not invited to this party, when they became aware of what was taking place inside of Matthew's house, how we don't know, but they did become aware of that, that Jesus was eating and drinking with such bad characters, they became outraged, incensed that the Lord would dare to eat with people like this. So most likely when the meal had ended and everyone was getting ready to file out of Matthew's house, they, these Pharisees and scribes, then complained to the Lord's disciples about their teacher's behavior. Now, even though their words are communicated in the form of a question where they said, why do you, really meaning, why do you and your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, they weren't asking this in the sense that they were looking for an answer. This isn't a question that demands an answer. No, this was intended to be a rebuke against them and against the Lord by accusing his disciples of following a teacher, a rabbi with such low morals. In other words, what they were really saying is shame on you for having this man as your rabbi by eating and drinking with such low lives. He obviously approves of their behavior and therefore he must be like one of them in his behavior. You see, they were accusing Jesus of being a sinner like the people he just shared a meal with. In fact, it may very well be from this incident in Matthew's home that Jesus received from this point on the unjust reputation as a gluttonous man and a drunkard. That is what he was accused of. Jesus said it himself in Matthew eleven nineteen. He said, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, the gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So how did Jesus respond to such criticism? Well, here's what we read in verses 31 and 32, his response. And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, apparently Jesus overheard the complaint that the Pharisees and scribes had made to his disciples, or perhaps his disciples went and told him about this criticism. But in either case, Jesus stepped in and he answered for them. And rather than defend his own character, saying, no, I don't do the things that they do, no, he explained to the Pharisees why he ate and drank with such shady characters as tax collectors and notorious sinners. Using an illustration from the world of medicine, Jesus stated that he was like a doctor ministering to the sick. In other words, as a physician of the soul, these people were in need of him because they were spiritually ill, they were spiritually sick, and only he had the cure for their illness, which was what? The forgiveness of their many sins. In other words, he's paying them a house call. Remember when doctors used to do that? Some of you do. He was paying them a house call 
like a doctor would do for a sick patient. He was among them as their spiritual physician to heal their disease of sin, not to participate in their sinful lifestyle. Now this is, folks, this is a tremendous statement by our Lord because his words were intended to be a rebuke to the very self-righteous Pharisees who thought of themselves as spiritually healthy and well and looked down with contempt upon tax collectors and sinners as spiritually sick and ill. They thought they were above them. And what Jesus is saying to them is that the reason I hang around with people like these and not with you is because these folks know they're sick. They know they're in need of a physician, but not you. Not you. You think that everything is fine with you because you are outwardly moral, outwardly upright. Therefore, you don't think you need forgiveness. So I don't spend my time with you. In other words, the Lord is saying, I minister to people who know that they are sinfully sick and in need of the medicine of forgiveness. Now, there are a couple of significant truths that emerge from this conflict with the Pharisees. First of all, I want to reiterate the point that Christ's attendance at a party with tax collectors and sinners is a great example for us to follow. Though, listen, you may indeed, you probably will invite criticism from some self-righteous, Pharisaic-like Christians. If you do this, if you get together with the unsaved who are unsavory, you will get criticized But do it anyway, because that's our Lord's example. And anybody who condemns you for this, that's just self-righteousness. They're just like the Pharisees. Our Lord's example ought to impress upon us the importance of getting close enough to non-Christians to minister to them. Now, this doesn't mean that we should ever participate in any sinful activities along with them. But if you are ever going to minister to the lost then we need to be careful that we don't isolate ourselves from them, which is what we so often do. Like Jesus, we need to go where non-Christians are. So be with them at social events. Talk to them at your children or grandchildren's sporting events. Invite them over to your house. And if some curse words fly, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You won't lose your sanctification. A second truth that's critical for all of us to understand from Christ's encounter with these Pharisees is that God's forgiveness can only be experienced by those who who know they're lost, who know that they're in need of his forgiveness. This is why self-righteous people like the Pharisees can never be saved as long as you have their attitude because as long as you think of yourself as someone who's good, then you will never see your need for forgiveness. And the reason for this is because you don't feel that you've done anything wrong that requires God's forgiveness. Why should I be forgiven? I'm a good person. But how wrong you are if that's your attitude and how wrong the Pharisees were. The Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees were just as wicked and sick in their hearts as the tax collectors. Just as wicked and sick in their hearts. But their self-righteousness blinded them to their spiritual need for forgiveness. They were, as one person described them, all about much ritual, but no righteousness. Everything was external. I wonder, does that describe you? Those of you who are watching, does that describe you? Do you feel so comfortable and secure in your religion that you've allowed it to blind you so that you don't see your sinful heart and therefore you don't see your need for Christ's forgiveness? That's exactly what the Pharisees did, and that's why Jesus rebuked them. 
They were unrighteous, but they didn't see themselves as unrighteous. Listen, they needed Christ as a physician as much as the tax collectors, but they didn't see it. They didn't see it. And therefore, they failed to see their need for God to forgive them. You know what? Tragically, it's too late for those men. They've been in hell for over 2,000 years now. Think about how close they were. They actually spoke to Jesus. We're in the same room with Jesus. They had the opportunity to come to Christ for salvation, and they, and they blew it. They blew it. It's tragic. But it is not too late for you. If you'll just be honest with yourself by recognizing that your heart is a heart of rebellion towards God. And if you'll be honest with yourself, then you'll see how much you need God's forgiveness. And seeing this, if you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, believing that his death on the cross was the payment for your sin, and then you place your trust in him completely for your salvation, meaning that you trust him to forgive all of your sins based on his death on the cross. If you'll do that, he will forgive you. He'll forgive all, not some, but all of your sins so that you are never condemned and you can go to glory when you die. And once this happens, you know what? Things will change in your life. You'll want to tell others about Christ. You will tell others about Christ so that they can be forgiven too. And you'll want to obey all that Jesus tells you in his word to obey. And that includes observing the Lord's Supper as a way to remember his death on your behalf. Let's stand for closing prayer. I hope that you will be back tonight as the word of God will go forth from this pulpit. Father, we thank you for what we have studied today. Lord, thank you for forgiving us, for choosing us. Lord, we are all like Matthew, Levi, all wicked in our hearts. And you have chosen to love us, to draw us to yourself, to forgive us. We pray for those, Lord, perhaps in the auditorium or watching on live stream. If they've never been saved, we pray that you'll show them their need for you, their need for the great physician of the soul to forgive them. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to follow you, to abandon even remnants of sin now in our lives, and to follow you with great passion. And we pray that you will help us, Lord, enable us to be more aggressive, to be with unbelievers, and not to force the issue of witnessing, but to ask you to open doors that we naturally can walk through, but help us to have no fear of man, but to be around those who would never, never come to church, would never come into a building to hear the gospel, but help us to go to them, and regardless of criticism from self-righteous Christians, help us to do exactly the way you handle things when you were in this world. This we pray in your name, Lord. Amen.